Okay, well, thank you very much for coming. I'm talking about the stuff of everyday life, the why we move our hands when we talk and, and when we think. And it's not just people from the Mediterranean countries. We all do it. And what might look like vague movements at this time, I'm telling you by the end of the evening, you'll know exactly what, what each of them says. So the specific goals of the talk, I'm going to present a new theoretical perspective on these movements and body language generally. It's part of nonverbal communication, part of body language. So I'll be saying something about that. To persuade you, and this is sometimes the tricky bit, that much of what you believe is wrong. There are so many myths about body language and about gesture, I'm going to try and correct those. And my first dig at that stuff is so much of what you believe you know isn't based on spontaneous behaviour at all. So, and then I'm going to talk about the practical significance of all of this. Okay, so what's new about this theory? Well, what's new about it is the function of nonverbal behaviour. The traditional theory is that body language, nonverbal communication is all about the expression of emotions and interpersonal attitudes and relationships. So if you want to tell someone that you like them, you do it through your body language. If you want to tell someone you're hostile, through your body language. It's very awkward to tell them verbally, to say, I used to like you, but I like you less. Uh, and of course, the reason is that people can report it back to you subsequently, which isn't so good. So you do it through body language, much more subtle that way. Now, what I'm going to say is some body language does that. Of course it does. But some reveals aspects of thinking. And I tr trust me, this will change your life. Uh, when you go home tonight, things will never be the same again. Okay. The second kind of thing new about the theory, I'm going to show you how powerful this stuff is, how powerful body language is and how powerful hand gesture is. But it's not 93% of all communication. This is one of those myths that's everywhere. So here's an ad for a credit card which says only 7% of communication is verbal. Make the other 93% count. In other words, buy the credit card and it will tell people all they need to know about you. Now, it's really interesting because this is based upon some psychology studies done a long time ago. Albert Morabian got an actor, and this is important, to deliver words which rather indicated liking, were neutral or dislike. And the words were honey, maybe, and brute. And he had this, two people deliver them with different tones and facial expressions, and then asked people to judge the resulting message. And Moravian famously found that the face communicated 55%, the tone 38%, and the content 7%. In other words, the content hardly at all. Argal did a, did a study on messages, and he found something really, really similar, which was uh, the content was only apparently between 7 and 8 percent. But the first thing I have to say about these studies is it wasn't spontaneous communication. So what did it look like? Here we have an actress, quite a famous actress now it turns out, Michelle Fox. She's going to say the words, and I want you to tell me what, what you think she's uh, indicating. Honey. Honey. Dear. Dear. Maybe. Maybe. Really. Really. Don't. Don't. Bruce. Bruce. All right, well, okay, there are clearly conflicting communications. But of course, in real life, we don't communicate our attitudes to people just through single words. So the sophistication and the subtlety and the spontaneity isn't there. She, these are set up as posed and deliberate communications. Similarly, Michael Argyle did, did, a, did a study, a very, very famous study, cited lots of times, in which he got a message like this. And imagine if I said this to you, and I'm asking you to rate, is this a, a friendly mes message or a hostile message? And I've only changed it slightly. I don't much enjoy meeting people who attend these sorts of talks. I often find them rather boring and difficult to deal with. Please make your way out after the talk as quickly as possible. Now, that is not a friendly message. Now, but what Argyle said was, what happens if I deliver that in a friendly way? Well, this is exactly what he did. So it was either delivered in a friendly way, warm, soft tone of voice, smiling face, relaxed posture, or in a neutral, expressionless voice, blank face, or hostile, harsh voice, frowning with teeth showing. A lot of people have been hostile to me today, all day today, and I've yet to see anybody with frowning with teeth showing. These are, <laughs> these are pretty extreme. But when he did that, he found that the, if you look here, this is the hostile non-verbal style. Look, this is a seven-point scale. One's really hostile, seven's really friendly. What Argyle says, it doesn't really matter what you say. You just place enormous emphasis on the non-verbal. And this is where this 
in terms of communication, the nonverbal is 93%. Now, a couple of questions to begin with. Are the verbal and nonverbal styles representative of real spontaneous communications? I don't think so. How many senders were used? These are classic studies. This whole business of only 7% of communication comes from this. How many senders were used? In that second study, how many people were used to deliver the message, would you think, to draw a conclusion about all communication in all times and all places? How many participants? I can't, I can't see many people, so the people in the front row are going to be picked on mercilessly. So how many would you say? A big conclusion in psychology. How many senders? A thousand? Ten thousand? What would you say? Psychology. <laughs> a lot of people. Give me a number. A hundred? Well, anyone go lower than 100 to draw a general conclusion about all human communication? Have a guess. A thousand. You'd think a thousand. One. <laughs> this study is one person. An attractive female student aged 23. So does it generalise to men? Older people? What? So, I mean, to me, it's one of those extraordinary psychological studies that's bizarrely restricted and then been overgeneralised. So we end up with this conclusion... In terms of communication, only 7% is verbal. It's based on that study in the Meridian. Now, I also thought, well, hang on a second. People, I think, are unfriendly to me in everyday life all the time. And very few people say to me, I don't much like meeting you. Right? They're, they're a bit more subtle. So what I did was, believe it or not, I kept a diary. And every time someone said something horrible to me, I wrote it down. <laughs> now, the reason that's interesting from a psychology point of view, at least that's spontaneous. Okay, there's things that people have said spontaneously, I've written it down. And the question I ask is, if you deliver those messages, I'm going to show you what they were, in a really nice way, does that make them really nice? Or because they're spontaneous, are they still bloody horrible? Okay, so let me show you. Right, right. This is my life. Would you mind leaving? Okay, now, I took that as not a particularly friendly thing. Okay? And much, much worse, you used to be such a nice person. <laughs> Has anyone ever had that said to them? It's not very nice, right? Now, according to this big theory of communication, if they're delivered in a friendly way, then <laughs> you should see it as really friendly. So if someone says, would you mind leaving with a smile on their face? You go, wow, you like me so much. <laughs> and you used to be such a nice person with a friendly smile. You go, oh, thank you. Uh, I just don't agree with it, and, and I think the, the reason that they've got it wrong is they haven't looked at spontaneous communication. Here's Michelle Fox delivering these lines again, okay? Would you mind leaving? You used to be such a nice person. My God, she's so patronising in that second one, isn't she? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's even more horrible, isn't it? Right, so this the idea that all, in terms of communication, only 7% is verbal, I think isn't correct. They haven't looked at spontaneous communication. Right, my third kind of gripe, my third myth about body language is this connection with speech. The traditional assumption in academic and popular literature is they're separate. We speak and we have body language and the two things are separate. So if you go and buy a million-selling book on body language, this is one here, this is people interacting, right? Does anyone want to make a comment, first of all, about what they're not doing? There are several things they're not doing. What are they not doing? They're not talking, right? So the idea is you go to a, a party or, or, a, or a seminar or something and you just start, you don't talk to each other, you just blow smoke up and down. So that's one thing. Anything else they're not doing? Looking. Look, they're not looking much. They're not what? They're not looking at each other. They're not looking at each other. What else are they not doing, which we do typically a lot of in real life? Moving. They're not moving very much. But the idea is that there's so much going on. Now, can anyone tell me what's going on in that picture in terms of interpersonal relationships? According to the, this million-selling book. Very good. <laughs> You've obviously read the book, yeah, right. So, female on the right. Oh, exactly, exactly. That's exactly what the book says. So the, the guy in the middle sees, sees a bit of a threat, the, the man on the left. Uh, and, and, and what's happening is that uh, the lady apparently likes this man who's fixing his tie. And, and you can tell that she likes him by, by what? She's, yeah, exactly. That's what the book says. I, I haven't found the psychological literature on this. Uh, there's not much science on this, but according to the book, if you blow smoke upwards, that's a good sign. 
That's what the book says. Uh, and if you blow smoke downwards like the guy in the middle, that's a really bad sign. That's, can I use, you really pissed her off, actually. You're, uh, if you blow smoke downwards, right. And she's exposing her wrist, which is a good sign. And he's responding by fixing his tie. So there's all this kind of stuff going on. It's quite separate from language. And the question is, is that really what body language is like, or is it really connected with what we do? Here's Steve Ballmer, CEO of Microsoft. Let's watch his body language uh, and look at what's happening with respect to speech. We might as well get right into it, because we, we only have a few minutes of your time. Sure. You're famous for that developers, developers, developers speech, right? <laughs> Why are developers so uh, important at Microsoft? At the end of the day, the innovation at the soft, in the software business and the IT business comes because somebody writes a great piece of code. Even in hardware, fact, frankly, most of the innovation these days comes because somebody writes a good piece of code, an important piece of code, a great piece of code. So all the solutions, whether we create them ourselves, whether they're created by our partners, ISVs, it all starts with developers, developers, developers. <laughs> okay, interesting body language. But can you see the connections? Every time he says something slightly different, the body language changes. And again, in terms of what you read about, in terms of the academic literature and the popular literature, it never recognizes those connections. And the fourth kind of issue is the kind of traditional assumption is that bodily communications is slow and easy to recognize. So you often get pictures, still pictures, with interpretations. Now, the guy in the middle has to be Des Lanham. <laughs> or is that just me? I mean, it, right, so it, it certainly looks like him, right? And the idea is that it's so slow we can interpret it. So again, what's happening body language-wise there? He's, he's defending his kind of defensive posture, as you are there, exactly. I was going to say that, but defensive posture, and, and the two people at the end are, are mimicking each other's bodily posture, and that's called postural echo or postural congruence. Very, very slow, easy to interpret. Now, again, when you study real bodily language, it's much quicker. Now, this is a much more subtle one. Can anyone tell me what's happening to Balmer in this clip? Right. Coming up with tough questions for you is pretty hard. If you were in my position, what tough questions would you be asking the CEO of Microsoft? I think developers have to, have to ask the following basic question. Do you see anything interesting there? He was rubbing his head, and that's called a self-adapter, a self-comforting movement. And the guy said, he, he, if, if you were in my position, what question would you ask? And he stops rubbing his head, so he relaxes because he, he realizes he's not going to be asked a tough question. So it's those subtle, small movements that I'll be talking about much more. Now, as I say, I'm going to be th rethinking function, but of course I'm not going to say that some nonverbal communication isn't about emotion and it's, it isn't about interpersonal relationships. And yet, extraordinarily, so much of the psychological literature isn't based upon spontaneous emotions at all. It's based on posed expressions. So all the stuff on the universality is based on that, so much of the stuff on gender differences. So just to show you what clips were used in the original Ekman study on emotion, if I show you a clip, you tell me what emotion it is. And this chap's been asked to pose this particular emotion. It's not spontaneous, he's posing it. What is that? Sad. Sad. <laughs> I'm doing a soundtrack now, yeah. Disgust. So, so easy. And the stuff on, uh, with, with, with the Highlanders from New Guinea was based on something similar. They were, they were told a story and told to act out the emotion, and then they were played to other individuals. So again, it's not spontaneous emotion there. They're being asked to, to consciously and deliberately send uh, a facial expression. Now, of course, again... My argument would be that the interpretation of spontaneous expression is much more difficult than that. So I'm going to just play you a few spontaneous emotions. I want you to tell me what's going on. And these are emotions frozen in time to make it easy, but they are spontaneous. So this child here, is he just about to cry? Is he holding back the tears or neither? <laughs> Crying? Trying to stay in control at a funeral or neither? If neither shut out, what do you think it is? Singing. Singing. Oh, not bad. God bless America. Okay, so angry and shouting, in pain, just been struck or neither? Neither, what do you think? 
It's that child sad? So sad, ashamed, has he just been told off or another? Ashamed. Is she on a fairground ride? Is she sneezing or another? Sneezing? <laughs> Threatening the US. <laughs> Wrestling a child? Surely not. <laughs> this is an interesting one. A spontaneous facial expression. So, is she giving money to a beggar? Is she feeling sorry for someone? Is she sad because a relationship's finished? Yeah, being dumped. Being dumped. <laughs> Not quite. Uh, so it's much more difficult interpreting spontaneous facial expressions, even when they're f frozen in time. And of course, the point about human beings is that we rarely let, we try to control our spontaneous expressions. And when you're trying to read people emotionally, of course, you have to be able to see through this aspect of control. Uh, so when we control our emotional state, uh, we have to be able to detect emotional expressions which are very quick, and we have to uh, also be able to interpret, interpret facial expressions which start and then are squelched or inhibited in some way. So here are a couple of expressions that we need to look out for. Micro-expressions are full-faced expressions compressed in time. They last for about a quarter of a second. Some people pick them up. Some people, if you, say, if you play them clips of micro-expressions in a, in a face, otherwise not during an expression, they, they just miss them altogether. Uh, and then squelched expressions are, as the expression emerges, it's covered with a false smile. So to read people, if you're trying to work out people's real emotional state, spontaneous emotional state, you have to be able to distinguish genuine and false smiles and then read the underlying expression underlying that. So the main indicators of a genuine smile are, apart from uh, uh, the muscles around the eyes, is bilateral symmetry. In a genuine smile, it's equally intense on both sides. And a genuine smile has a slow onset and decline. Whereas a masking smile, to, to mask our emotional state, is asymmetric on the face with an abrupt onset and decline. So, of course, what I'm saying is that some body language is about um, emotional encoding, but actually it's much more difficult than many uh, books, both popular and academic, would have you believe. Because we have to be able to interpret spontaneous expressions. We have to be able to detect micro-expressions. We have to be able to discriminate types of smiles, and then we have to decode facial expression as a masking smile fades. So it's a lot less straightforward than you might think. But when we do all this, we might get a genuine insight into how someone feels. And I'll just play you a little bit of a clip. Uh, occasionally, I'm asked to look at the, the body language of politicians. And this is a little archive clip from quite a while ago, 2005, at a general election. And this is me analysing the relationship in, in terms of non-verbal communication between Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, who, of course, at the time were being uh, projected as the dream team, you know, great relationship. Uh, and this is me just looking at the expressions. Much has been made in the past about the relationship between the Prime Minister and his Chancellor, Gordon Brown, and the possible rift between them. On one level, their behaviour signals that they want to display a united front. Gordon Brown is the first to applaud Tony Blair when he's introduced. And he smiles broadly. But at another level, you can see through this, his smile is an intentional smile, controlled by a different part of the brain to that which controls the spontaneous smile, and is marked by a very abrupt end. As Tony Blair talks, Gordon Brown touches his face three times. This is a self-comforting gesture to deal with negative emotion. And it's all done within the first 10 seconds of Tony Blair speaking. This is a primitive gesture designed to mimic the maternal touch, designed to soothe. So the conclusion so far is that body language is dynamic, quick, and presumably harder to read. How important it is depends on many factors, and that body language and speech are closely integrated. So I'm going to now move from just general body language to the hands, which is of particular interest now. The study of the hands and the relationship between hand movements and speech has got a long history. Um, Cicero said the body is like a musical instrument, with the delivery or action being a sort of eloquence of the body, since it consists in gesticulation as well as speech. Cicero thought that the hands were of special interest in terms of the relationship with speech. And Quintilian, in terms of the art of rhetoric, 
give precise instructions on how to produce gestures. So, for example, if you want to make the ring gesture, he says, if the first finger touched the middle of the right hand edge of the thumbnail with its extremity, the other finger's being relaxed. So the way to do the ring gesture is being specifically prescribed. Um, and it's that kind of zero shape that's, that's really, really important. And Quintilian said the hands may also be said to speak. Uh, a lot later, Bulwer uh, said, cautioned against the improper use of manual rhetoric. And this is really interesting because he's warning against the stuff that we do spontaneously, which I'll argue have got a really important psychological function. And again, Bulwer uh, uh, did a glossary of gestures with the correct interpretation and usage of a whole set of them. And the idea behind this was to consciously control hand movements to make them less spontaneous and more communicatively viable. And this is some of uh, Bulwer's descriptions here. Uh, more recent still, Ekman and Friesen distinguish between different sets of hand movements and gestures. Emblems, uh, I'll talk about those in a second, and then illustrators, which are the ones that kind of go with speech. There are a number of different types here. Iconic and metaphoric are those more complex ones that map out images. Batonic are the stress-timed movements. Didactics are the pointing gestures, the self-adapters, uh, the kind of self-comforting movements. They're the broad categories. Now, what's really interesting is one particular set, and I'll, I'll show you what, which ones are the psychologically most revealing. Emblems, first of all. Emblems are the ones that Quintilian would recognise. These are hand gestures with standard form and precise meaning, which are culturally specific. So a few emblems are that. So shout out what that means. Peace. That. Is that the same as peace? No. So gestures with a direct verbal translation, the ring gesture, okay, in most countries. And uh, Des Morris, uh, uh, quite a few, few decades ago now, I actually did a, did a, a map of uh, Europe with, with the, the various translations of these different emblems. Now, the point about emblems is that uh, they're gestures with a direct verbal translation. People know when they're using an emblem, can repeat it if asked to do so. So if I do peace and you say, what have you done? I can do it again. And they can occur without speech. They don't need speech. Now, the, a really interesting category are these things called iconic or metaphoric gestures. Iconic are, are, are any gestures which show some connection with the thing that they're being used to describe. And metaphoric gestures are where we use the hands to represent more abstract concepts. Now, the point about these gestural movements is that they have no standard form and no lexicon. If you see someone making one of these kind of weird movements, you can't say, I don't recognise that variant. You just can't do it. So these are spontaneous images in the hand, the kind that Bulwer was trying to control. They're unconsciously produced, which is so weird. You know, we know that we're making some kind of movement, and I, I know that it was some kind of rotational movement there, but I couldn't tell you exactly where I was doing it. Uh, they're closely integrated with the speech itself, and, the, and yet the start of the movement for the gesture slightly precedes the speech, and this is really, from a psychology point of view, really interesting. And gesture, these gestures have different phases. They have a preparation phase where the hand gets into position to make the movement. Then there's something sometimes called a pre-stroke hold where it stops temporarily. Then the meaningful bit of the gesture happens. And then there's sometimes something called a post-stroke hold and then a retraction phase. And I'll explain why these tell us so much about thinking. Oh, there's some uh, politician who didn't get the right way around. Right. This is, on the other hand, these are the iconic and metaphoric gestures we're talking about. What's your call to action to, for developers right now? Well, yeah, I think the, the, one of the key things people have to understand is the PC is an important part of the overall ecosystem that people are using. It's intelligence at the edge of the Internet. And I think people got very excited appropriately about the Internet and HTML and browsers but I think there's going to be two places of innovation for developers over the next few years. One's going to be taking advantage of the intelligence at the edge of the network, uh, the PC and other intelligent edge to mobile phones, other intelligent edge devices, and the other is going to be using web services and XML to glue things together, applications, services, across the Internet, inside a data center, inside a developer's applications. Right. And between those two, two phenomena, I think there's plenty for developers to think about. Yeah. So these are unconsciously generated. Some of those are iconic, some of them are metaphoric. And if, he was, if Balmer was stopped and asked to repeat them, he'd know he was doing something. He wouldn't be able to say exactly what he was doing. 
And the question is, what are they used for? Why do we do them? Well, there have been at least three main hypotheses. One is that they help us find words. You know, speaking is an extraordinary act. We find words very quickly in the, the mental lexicon, the dictionary in our head. And some people have argued that these gestures are mapping out dimensions of the words which help you access them. Some people have said, look, in terms of human communication, it's just an evolutionary relic. At one point we gestured, now we speak. It's just some, some primitive act. But the third hypothesis, which has really taken hold in, in contemporary psychology, is they, they represent a core bit of the underlying representation. Now, let me give you um, some, some of, just very quickly, an experiment I did on, on, on word finding. If, if they're connected to word finding, then if you inhibit them in some way, if you put people in the tip of the tongue state and allow them to gesture, they should be able to find words quicker than if you don't allow them to gesture. So I did a simple experiment where I asked people either to fold their arms or sit in their hands. I put people in the tip of the tongue state by giving them a definition and seeing if they knew the word. So I'll try and put you in the tip of the tongue state. If you know the word, don't shout it out. Okay? So what's the name of that device? I'm sure you'll all know this. Um, it works with university students. Um, uh, which, in which you measure angles in geometry. Okay? Now, do some people know that word immediately? Yeah. Do some people not know that word? Think, don't know what you're talking about. And some people think, yeah, I know the word, just can't say it. Yeah? Yeah? Maybe you? No, you, 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 I think you know it. Okay. So what's really interesting, you put people on the top of the tongue state, um, they start doing some weird stuff. So it's a type of circ circumference thing. I know what it is. It's that bloody arc thing. Oh, no, what's the word? It's on the tip of my tongue. It's, and you can see that the, the gesture is making semicircular movements. Okay? So it's kind of mapping out what the thing looks like. I had to, I had to, um, it's a, an arc, no, it's an arch, it's a row something, it's, oh God, something arc, arch, rotor, blah, 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 and, and it's, it drives them crazy, and when you put people on the tip of the tongue state, they do all these gestures, it doesn't help them find the word, <laughs> which is extraordinary, right, so, so that persuaded me it probably wasn't that. Now, the, the big idea that's caught on in psychology is this notion that it's a core part of the underlying representation. So this comes from a guy called David McNeil from the University of Chicago. He argues to get the full cognitive representation that the speaker had in mind, both the sentence and the gesture must be taken into account. Now, this is the simplest example, but there's it's a, it's a really important point McNeil makes from it. He's talking about someone being chased. And what the person says verbally is, and she chases him out again. And the square brackets indicate when the gesture starts and when it stops. And, and the gestural movement is there. The hand appears to swing an object through the air. So what the person's saying is, and she chases him out again with an umbrella. The person's using an umbrella to chase someone. But the person doesn't say in speech with an umbrella. The gesture does that. And the really interesting thing is the gesture and the speech coincide directly. And those hands get into position before you're consciously aware of what you're going to say to make the correct movement. Now, according to McNeil, the speech conveys the idea of pursuit and recurrence, but not the means of pursuit. The gesture shows the method swinging an umbrella. The sentence is well-formed and the gesture isn't a repair. So his conclusion is, if you want to understand the whole sentence, you need to take both bits into account. The fact that there's something in the speech and there's something in this accompanying gesture. And he says, utterances possess two sides, only one of which is speech, the other is imagery. To exclude the gesture side, as has been traditional, is tantamount to ignoring half the messages out of the brain. Okay, so the idea is that both communicate, but they do so in slightly different ways. So this is someone talking about a table going up, raised up towards the ceiling, and that's someone enacting the gesture. Speech is linear and segmented. It identifies what's being raised, the table, the action, and then the direction of the action sequentially. Gesture is multidimensional. It's doing the object, this is the table, the movement, the speed and the direction all at the same time. Speech works in terms of bottom-up processing. You know, we, in order to understand a sentence, we understand the words and the syntax and how they connect, and then we understand the sentence. Gesture is top-down. You need to know something that this is a table going up to know that the, the speed and the movement is being represented. Speech has got standards of form. If I say a word you've never heard before, you're, you can stop me and say, I'm sorry, I don't understand what you've just said. But you cannot ever stop anyone who's gesturing and say, in this way, and say, I don't understand that movement. So the idea behind this is that we spontaneously create meaning in gesture. 
Now, again, the question is, when people talk to each other, do they pick up on these movements? Because it might not be obvious, because what's really weird about these gestural movements is they occur at different points in this gestural space in front of people. Some of them just occur down here and up there, and some of them are big and some of them are small. And I did a lot of work eye-tracking people, looking at gaze fixations to see how on earth they're drawn to these movements. But weirdly, because normally when we talk to someone, we look at the eyes and the mouth most of the time, but our hands do flit to these weird gestural movements and we pick up on it. The information might be too vague in these movements, and of course it might be too complex to combine information from a visual code and auditory in real time. So I did a whole series of experiments in a, described in a book called Visible Thought, in which I got people, encoders, tell stories. Then we played edited clips of these stories to decoders, and the edited clips were either just the speech or just the gesture, or the speech and gesture together. And then we interrogated decoders to see what they'd learned from the clips. What we learned was that decoders process the information in the gestures very quickly and effortlessly. Just a couple of silly examples. She's eating the food. She, uh, vague in itself, the gesture shows how she's eating the food. Produced spontaneously. And this is what's called a character viewpoint gesture. It's from the point of view of the person doing the, doing the action. Billy going sliding along, causing all sorts of mayhem. There was a little tiny hand movement which showed the direction, the speed of it. That's called an observer gesture. Again, people tended to pick up on that. And what we found was that when you play these video clips to people, they pick up on a whole series of different uh, attributes. Size, position, direction, movement, identity, type of action, speed and shape. The observer viewpoints are good at those. And the point about this is, this is stuff which is not in the speech itself. The gesture is working around the speech, and together it's communicating all of that. So, gestures convey information. The next study we did was, how important is this information? And what we did was, we took a whole series of stories and coded every single bit of size information in the stories. Uh, and then we looked at whether the information was going into the speech the gesture or the speech and gesture. Um, and we got independent judges to say how important the particular size information was from the point of view of the story as a whole. Now, I couldn't have anticipated the results of this study because I in, you know, naively would have thought if, so, if size information was really important, you know, if I'm walking through London tonight and a huge bicycle knocks me over and someone says, what knocked you over? And I'd say, a huge bicycle. I think I'd go, a huge bicycle. Or I'd say, a huge bicycle. What I didn't anticipate was going like this, a bicycle. Just the gesture. And to me, this was quite a weird finding. And we've replicated it in a whole series of different dimensions, which is this gestural channel, the unconscious one, is often given the job of picking up some of the core semantic features in, a, in, a, in a, an account. OK. So that's the basic idea. And, and I think ideas are only interesting if they've got lots and lots of interesting applications. And these are some of the applications, I think, of this particular line of work. Reading hidden thoughts. This is where I will ruin your night for you. Uh, detecting deception. Identifying dissociation attitudes. I'll explain what that means in advertising. OK, reading hidden thoughts, first of all. Again, McNeil's idea was that gestures exhibit images that cannot always be expressed in speech, as well as images the speaker thinks are concealed. People unwittingly display their inner thoughts and ways of understanding events of the world through the gestures. So whenever people are trying to uh, send deliberate communicative messages, they edit their speech, but not their unconsciously generated gestures. If anyone in the audience can says, well, look, I do edit my gestures, I'd be fascinated to meet them. Because you, what you end up with, gestures and speech may not match. If people are trying to control what they say, but they're not controlling these movements, then occasionally they may say something and the gesture simply doesn't match what they're saying, in which case gestures are a more accurate indicator of underlying thinking. Now, I'm going to show you an example of it, but I'll just show you what I mean, first of all. And this is a, a little test for those people in, in, who, who are in relationships with anyone. Get people to talk about themselves and their partners. Just watch how they talk about them. Because when people talk about relationships, they use the gestural space Relationships is a very abstract and difficult concept, as we all know. But people will use their hands to represent the protagonists in a relationship. And if relationships are going fantastically, they will go, myself, my partner. Yeah. Uh, things, you know, slightly cooler, myself, my partner. 
Uh, cooler still, myself, my partner. Uh, they use the gesture space consistently, and if it's really, really not good, it's myself, my partner. Uh, and we did a little longitudinal study where we, we measured relationships in various ways. We had people talking about their relationships in terms of their speech, and we looked at the gestures, and it was kind of both fascinating and slightly amusing to watch the hands doing this. Now, I'm going to show you a little example of this. This is an example from a television programme called Big Brother from a few years ago, Celebrity Big Brother. And a guy called Les Dennis was in the uh, diary room. And he was talking about, he was asked to nominate housemates for eviction. And he says, it's really difficult because we're all very close. Now, all you have to do is watch his hand movements. <laughs> and I got a chance to ask him afterwards. So, I can't explain why, no. Um, well, yes, I will. Uh, but just let me say that it's been very difficult. It sounds like a cliche because judges say this at talent, talent contests and things like that been very difficult. We are, all six of us, very, very close. Really close. And of course I got a chance to say, how close are you? And he said, not really close at all. <laughs> um, now this was an interesting one. This is another one for Big Brothers. This uh, lady was asked who she thought was going to be nominated. And again, fascinating what she did. It's her, le her left hand first. And, and what she does is she gives a list. This was a Friday afternoon. The, no the nominations happened on a Friday. And she said, in her view, the people likely to be nominated was Jade, then me, then Johnny, then Kate. So she says four people she thinks are, are going to be up for eviction, and in that order. But again, fascinatingly, what she does is she goes Jade with her left hand, uh, and then switches to her right hand. Jade, then me, then Johnny, then Kate. So in other words, speech-wise, she put them in a list. She said she was in second place, but one hand did the person who was in first position, a different hand did, did herself, which was in second position. And again, she was ex just extraordinarily surprised to be evicted. Uh, this is Tony Blair at a party conference. He's talking about funding developments in uh, National Health Service. And again, there's just a slight mismatch here. So he's saying, rises in national insurance contribution funded developments in the, in the NHS through the last parliament and what he says verbally is and will continue to fund them through the next parliament so of course you would expect the gesture to continue right through <laughs> instead what happens it funded it through the last parliament and it just stops there <laughs> just stops so it's an interesting one so that's one it's a hidden thought sometimes gestures and speech don't match when they don't match it's always kind of psychologically interesting the second is kind of deception, and this is um, Darwin, of course, has speculated that the real thoughts, uh, nonverbal behaviour, reveal the thoughts and intentions of others more truly than do words which may be falsified. And he said that some movements will be partially repressed by the will, those being those least under separate control of the will should be highly expressive. So his idea was that if you can control it, you will. Uh, if you can't, it may leak. And he argued that deception is a fight between control and nonverbal leakage. Now, again, this is an interesting little fact. If you ask people about how they can tell a liar, uh, most people say similar kinds of things. They say, look at the eyes, get away to the soul. People look shifty. Or they talk, people fidget more, they move more. Um, but generally speaking, it's to do with facial expression, you know, weird kind of smiles, lip licks, anxiety, blah, 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 all those kind of things. The three behaviours most reliably associated with lying are nodding, foot and leg movements and hand movements. And interestingly, all three decrease in frequency. Most people would say that people move more when they're lying. All three decrease in frequency. Darwin was right. There is a degree of control kicking in. But the, the, I wasn't so happy with the work that had been done in that fairly crude categories had been used, like hand movements. And obviously, we're talking about types of hand movement. Now, I'm not saying Tony Blair was lying here, but all I'm saying is that there is an interesting inhibition of hand movement here. So this was in 2005. Um, he's talking to some young mums, which was a core demographic for him. Um, and the square brackets indicate the movement. So this is him. It's a, quite a long kind of conversation that he's having. And he's talking about, he's saying, I was completely wiped out. Hand movement, hand movement, hand movement. Uh, and he's, the, the next sentence he says twice, and both times hand movements were inhibited. And what he's saying is here is looking after kids when Cherie was at work is the toughest thing you ever do. Okay? And it's the only time in the whole conversation there's no movements. 
and he comes back to it as well so, to repeat it. It's the toughest thing you ever do. And as soon as he finishes that sentence, his hands start again. So he inhibits his movements just on very, very specific things. Okay, so <coughs> we did some experiments uh, a little while ago where we asked people to, to talk about something they'd either read or seen. And then we asked them to, to give the same kind of game, but to lie about specific parts of the story. They had to ch change some specific details. Now, it was interesting because what we found was that when you're asking people to tell a story which has lies embedded in it, they don't suppress movements all the way through the lie. They just lie, oops, sorry. They, they just lie half as much when telling the critical bits. So they're still gesturing when they know they're having to lie, but when they get to the bit they're lying on, they then inhibit. So half as many gestures when telling the lies. But we found something really interesting when we started looking at, in, more, in a more complicated way, at the structure of gestures when people are lying. Uh, the really interesting bits, these are the five phases I mentioned of a gesture. Preparation phase, when the hands get into position. The pre-stroke hold, when it just sometimes stops temporarily. Sometimes pre-stroke holds are often absent. Stroke phase is the meaningful bit, so that's always present. The post-stroke hold is what you do after you've made the meaningful bit and the retraction phase. And what was interesting, first of all, that the probability of a post-stroke hold halved when people were telling lies. So when people told lies, they tend to inhibit their gestural movements. When they allow the hands to flow some of the time, uh, the first thing they do is when they've made the uh, gesture, they get the hands back pretty quickly. And the other thing that was really interesting was the duration of the stroke phase. These are only milliseconds, so these are very short gestural movements but they got really short when people were telling lies. So generally speaking, when people are telling lies, they inhibit hand movements. If they don't, uh, when they make gestural movements, the gestures are much shorter, and when they've made the movement, the hands get into, back into position much quicker. Now, the other thing that was really interesting from this um, was this notion of mismatching speech and gesture. So these uh, things that they were lying about were quite specific incidents in the story. So one of the incidents was someone being slammed into the boot of a car. And that was the true bit of the story. Somebody slammed someone into the boot of a car. And when they did that, they made this kind of, it's a left-handed gesture. This is the gestural movement they did to accompany it. And that's the correct gesture. It goes with what's being said. But what we found was that when we asked them to lie about it, so this is someone lying about being pushed into the side door of the car, now, some people got it right. They were asked to lie about it, and they kind of rehearsed in their mind what that, you know, they went over and over, and they kind of did it. But interestingly, a lot of people didn't. What they did was the, oops, sorry, the, the weird gesture that was there the first time around popped back out again. So they're saying verbally, she, like, pushes the DJ into the side door of the car and, like, slams it shut. But the hand movement just doesn't correspond to that. The hand movement's doing the original thing, going in the boot. So that was interesting. Okay, so that's one application. The next application is explicit and implicit attitudes. Over the last couple of years, I've been looking at the relationship between what people report their attitude as being uh, and something called implicit attitude, which might be at odds with that. So I did a couple of books. One's on the environment called Why Aren't We Saving the Planet? And I've just written a new one called The Psychology of Climate Change, which is frustrating because everyone says they care deeply about the environment and everyone reports that they prefer low-carbon to high-carbon lifestyles. Everyone says it. But there seems to be something... Oops, I keep doing this, sorry. There seems to be something called a value-action gap between what they say and what they do. And I, I've become really interested in this issue of can we, in some sense, drill down to measure some kind of underlying unconscious implicit attitudes. And this is measured looking at... I'll not go into details, but it's measured using a reaction time task to pick up associative connections, something called the implicit association test, which is being used kind of fairly extensively in parts of psychology now. Now, what's really interesting, when you, when you use this implicit association test uh, and measure what people's reported attitudes are, you find, of all, there's no significant relationship between the two things. And some people are saying well, that means they're dissociated. We've done a lot of work looking at these implicit attitudes. When you show people uh, uh, products with carbon labels on them, the implicit attitude predict, predicts visual attention. What they report doesn't. And it also predicts choice of low-carbon products, particularly under uh, time pressure. And we've suddenly realised that there's a lot of people out there who, who we're calling surface greens who always report their very positive and explicit attitude but negative and implicit attitudes. And the question is, how can we, how can we identify these surface greens? And this would be a really interesting issue for psychology. 
Now, I suddenly thought, does my work on gesture really connect to this in any way? And part of what we did was we interviewed people talking about carbon choices. And I just want to show a kind of contrasting pair here. So this is a woman who's a true green, expressing her consumer choice. The thing you need to know about her is that she says she cares, her implicit attitude says she cares. And she's talking about making a choice between two products. Yeah, if it was like really high and really low, but it was the same product, but there was a difference in price, then I'd probably still feel really guilty about buying a high carbon one instead of buying a low. It's not good sound quality, but you see she's gesturing, she's putting high and low carbon in the gestural space, and she says she'd feel guilty about buying the high carbon, so she'd buy the low, and she gestured in, in the correct place. Now, this lady is different. She says she cares deeply. Her implicit attitude says she doesn't. She's talking about choice exactly in the same way. Now, watch her hand movements. They were next to each other, um, and it was quite obvious one was good and one was bad, and you'd go for the good one. It's reaching out for the bad one. She's trying to grab the high carbon item. And it's funny because we didn't find any gesture speech mismatches in our entire sample of people whose attitudes were, were consistent. OK, so any other applications? Well, if this is what human beings do in their everyday life, that we understand people in terms of these gestural movements, we process them. As I say, I've done work on eye tracking. On people, they seem to draw our attention. The question is, why don't we? And it's not like what Quintilian was thinking. We don't have to standardise them because we, we seem to pick up this meaning which is being expressed spontaneously for us. And, and the question is, could we use it to affect? Now, of course, somebody who's tried to use it to affect is, of course, Donald Trump, who's got the weirdest gestural movements I've ever seen. Because <laughs> the point about these things is they are spontaneous. They keep changing. And he's got these weird movements. He repeats again and again, which are, have no content whatsoever. He's been told that you can send a signal, OK, good, <laughs> by doing this. But whoever's, whatever psychologist has advised him hasn't quite got it right, thank God. Because uh, they're, they're really bad. Uh, and they don't look spontaneous or natural. But the question is, could you, what would happen if you simulated these real, spontaneous, unconscious gestures? That's an interesting question. So what I did, first of all, was I started looking out for ads which use gestures. And here's, a, here's one, at least one I found. So this is Michael Winner a few years ago talking about something. Now watch his gestures and tell me how, how natural they look. Some insurance companies don't want to insure me. There's a company that only wants good drivers. They don't want you to pay for my repairs. The company's insure. They could save you up to 30%. You went into the back of my new car. Calm down, dear. <laughs> It's a commercial. Uh, I'm really a very good driver. That's why I'm with Esher. Hello, Mum. I'm on the telly. Call Esher on 0845 045 3000. Now, there's so much wrong with that gesture, you wouldn't know where to start. The first thing is it's so slow, because the point about these gestures is they precede the speech. The preparation phase precedes, precedes the words. His started really late. And then he used the same identical gesture twice with different speech. That would never happen. So we watch that, and all we think is, not a great actor. And that's not, that's not fooling our brains. But the idea here was, somebody said, it was ITV, they said, look, does that mean that you could actually choreograph real spontaneous gestures to talk about a product? And I said, yeah, that, that would be possible. And they said, we'd like to, you to do that, make a weird psychology ad, and we'll do our normal ad, and we'll compare the two of them. So the product was F, fresh fruit drink for everyone, OK? They're the, they're the uh, types of fruit. That's what it looks like. And they said the critical thing is the fruit has to be, the fruit's going to be fresh in it, it's for everyone, and it's the bottle size. They're the core things. So what we did was we just got people talking about these things. So this isn't like Quintilian trying to get it exactly right, but we got people talking about fresh fruit. And weirdly, everyone does something, they do different things with their hands, but it's something about freshness. Everyone came out bottle size. So we did it for a whole series of products, and then we made two ads and we compared them. Okay, so speech and image shows fruit and products, no imagistic gestures. Speech and gesture shows no fruit, specifically uses three gestures to convey the core properties. So this is what they look like. This is, this is their own speech and image art. Come on, son. You invented F. So fess up. How's it done? Mango, pear, cranberries, banana and orange. All five fruit portions crammed into every tiny little bottle. Look, we're not monsters. No, we're greengrocers. Everyone's drinking it. Delicious. Fresh. You're muscling in on our patch. F. 
five daily portions of pure fruit in a wanna. <sighs> okay, so that's pretty good. You ask people how, you know, what kind of fruit, blah, 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 is it fresh, who's it for, blah, blah, blah. You test them three months later or six months later. So that's one. Next is the weird psychology one. Come on, son. You invented F. So fess up. How's it done? Mango, pear, cranberries, banana and orange. Five fruit portions crammed into every tiny little bottle. Look, we're not monsters. No, we're greengrocers. Everybody's drinking it. Delicious. Fresh. You're muscling in on our patch. F. Five daily portions of pure fruit in a wanna. So, so I guarantee in six months' time, people said, what was that lecture like? I said, we showed this weird heart. I said, what was it about fruit? What was the fruit like? Fresh. <laughs> Who's it for? Everyone. <laughs> it's like... And, of course, you know, when you think about it, you know, when you're at school, you learn about mnemonic techniques for remembering things, so you form a visual image. And I love the idea that in everyday life, human beings are forming visual images for other people to remember things uh, in, in, in a natural and unconstrained way. And lo and behold, we tested it for a whole series of products. The speech and gesture had, had the uh, edge on the speech and image. And of course, given that speech evolved in the context of or possibly through imagistic gestures or evolutionary past, may have profound implications for the design of the most modern advertisements. So the conclusions of this little talk. First of all, bodily communication does reveal emotions, relationships and thinking, particularly the hands. The hands, I would argue, make thoughts visible. We often inhibit the hands in deception for good reason. And we may be able to identify both deception and dissociation in attitudes by analysing gesture-speech mismatches. I mean, as I say, in everyday life, it's when the gesture and the speech don't match. There's something psychologically going on. That's what usually the cause of the arguments. And we can make messages more effective and more persuasive by putting key components into the unconscious gestural channel. You can see why the gestural channel would be so important, because it's normally unconscious, but... Obviously, with the ads here, we uh, choreographed it, and Donald Trump's desperately trying to put unconscious messages in. You know, when he does the chaos thing, and then he does the precision, which is, I can sort this out. It's chaos, now I can sort this out. But as I say, he's just not getting it right. He doesn't realise you have to keep changing them. And our evolutionary past has enormous implications for our present-day communications. And the books, uh, uh, 2016, I did that one. And the new one is, I've just written a book, which I thought would be quite funny, it's a novel, which is about what happens if you are a body language expert. <laughs> and you spend your whole life analysing the details, the micro details, it's called The Body's Little Secrets, and it's about the, um, it's about the, the psychologist coming to a sticky end. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you so much, yeah.